Hi folks, welcome to episode three of the Brothers in Arms podcast. Today in the room we've got Kieran Woods from Brothers in Arms, we've got Paul from Rebel City podcast and we're also joined today as our guest by Ali Houston. Ali's a health coach and food entrepreneur, former scientist. He fixed his health by changing how he eats and he now empowers his customers to do the same. Thanks so much for having me in, Gary. Today, uh, we were going to talk about food, drink, and mental health. Obviously, we've had chats before about uh, you know lots of improvements that you've seen in yourself and clients through the nutritional journey that you've been on. And so, yeah, I think that it'd be great to get that message out to Brothers in Arms listeners, help them understand a wee bit more about nutrition and the kind of things that they should really consider avoiding if they want to significantly improve their health, whatever aspect that might be. But of course, for us specifically, we're thinking about mental health. Well, it's a really broad subject, and I think um, it might be useful for people to know my individual story because these types of choices are very individual. And depending on who you are, your background and what your body's like, you might make different choices around what you're eating and drinking. I've been quite unwell since I was a child, so I had... Uh, multiple problems that the doctors couldn't really put their their fingers on in terms of the actual root cause so they would give me drugs or surgery to cover the symptoms and then kind of patch me up and send me away but it never really stopped them and that continued right right into my 20s and uh, you know I had a host of autoimmune problems I had gut issues I had uh, mental health issues you know depression anxiety and they would come and go and it was very frustrating you know, I, um, I kind of developed this anxiety around going to the doctor because I felt like half the time they weren't listening to me and half the time they were discovering something new and terrible. So um, that kind of continued right, right until I started putting on weight, which was what weirdly made me want to start thinking about what I was eating because I had never made the connection between all of these other health problems and my mental health with food. But of course, when you start putting on weight, maybe when you get into your mid-20s and it gets more difficult when maybe you've got an office job to um, control it, you start thinking about food. That's the, there's an obvious connection between, between food and weight. So I started kind of tinkering around with uh, calorie counting. I got my fitness pal. And of course, if you restrict calories like that, it works for a time. But anyone who's done that type of dieting knows that eventually the hunger takes over. So yeah. I kind of went through the, the, the painful process of just eating less and moving more. And then after six months or so, I couldn't take it anymore. You know, I liked the way I looked, but I hated the way I felt. And Such a familiar story. I know. bet, yeah. You, you, you know, you'll know from your clients. Uh-huh, yeah. As a personal trainer, that's uh, absolutely a familiar story, and you're you, you're largely right. You know, people will go through a certain amount of misery, which is being really living really restricted. Uh, they'll go through a certain amount of misery before they have to open the floodgates again. You know, and it's just this pendulum effect all the time. That's it. Well, I have to sacrifice. I have to suffer. Uh, okay, I've done it. I'm at this point right now have a few beers again, have a few nights out again, I can do this, do that. Before you know it, that slippery slope, um, you, you, you slide down that slippery slope and you're back to feeling really shit. And of course, that's going to have a really large effect or a big effect on your mental health. Absolutely. Um, and that, that psychological aspect was definitely there. You know, I gained somewhat in my mental health in, uh, in terms of losing weight, but the anxiety was still there. The low moods and depressive tendencies were still there. So there was something deeper going on. And besides the fact that I just couldn't hack doing my fitness pal forever and ever. Yeah. And I put the weight back on and a bit more. And Absolutely. I think people find that a lot as well. You know, Absolutely. we've got this like set point in us, which um, is kind of like a thermostat for the heating. Yeah. And um, if you want to make the room warmer, you turn the thermostat up but if it gets too hot you might open the window but then the, the boiler will kick in again yeah. you know your your body does not want you to starve yeah. so when you starve it then it thinks it's going to die 
And so when you start eating again, it makes you that little bit fatter than you were before. It's a very frustrating process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I found that moving into sort of my early 30s. And I thought, um, I've got the weight back on. I've still got, I still feel depressed and anxious. I don't really know what to do. Now, um, I've had a kind of dual career in my life. Uh, When I left school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'd I'd been working in restaurants. So I just, I, I kept doing that and I really loved that. Um, I was a manager in uh, restaurants in Glasgow, like Regano and uh, Stravagan. Eventually, I, I became a manager in Stravagan. And, um, I, you know, that gave me a lot, but there was definitely a, an unhealthy culture around drink in that of environment. Of course. And uh, that kind of led me on to something of a party uh, lifestyle. And um, after that, I decided this isn't healthy, I'm going to go to uni and see if that puts me on the straight and narrow. Because mental health was, was that was one of my low points, was partying all the time, uh, working in restaurants. Yeah. And late nights and, and all the rest of it. The only way you can get a, a, a break if you're working in a restaurant smoking. is smoking a fag. <laughs> um, decided to go to uni and um, studied maths and physics, ended up getting a degree in maths and physics and was working in uh, in that sort of field. So I had, had a job in a laser factory. Uh, believe, it, believe it or not, there's two of them in Glasgow. It's, uh, I was kind of like a, a minor Bond villain henchman. <laughs> and, uh, and that was all well and good, but I kind of, I felt a bit restless. I, I definitely had the mental health problems bubbling up. And that's when I started doing the MyFitnessPal stuff. It wasn't really helping. I felt a bit of kind of, unsureness about what I was doing in my life and I decided to start a PhD in physics. I thought a change is as good as a holiday. I can always go back to this line of work after the PhD but that was like out of the frying pan into the fire with my mental health because I didn't really know anything about PhD. I should have known more, should have done more research ironically before I went into it but they sort of leave you alone to do your own thing. That's the the beauty of it and the difficulty of it. Like if you're super passionate about it, then you can just, you can conquer the world in your four years. But I was a bit lost and alone during it. And my mental health wasn't good. But that's when things changed because I was lucky that my supervisor, professor at Glasgow University, Ken Strain, uh, professor in gravitational wave physics. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. He's part of the international group that discovered gravitational waves a few years back. The heads of the group won the Nobel Prize in physics for that. Wow. Like mentally, he's no slouch. Mm-hmm. But about 15 years ago, he developed chronic fatigue syndrome, ME. And he was more or less bedridden, couldn't walk 50 yards without collapsing. And he was told that he would never work again, probably. This is in his early 40s. And he couldn't accept that and decided to do what he does best, which is to research. Uh-huh. So he dived into it and discovered that there was authors out there and bloggers out there who were writing about nutrition and were um, finding that they were having great results with their health. And it wasn't just chronic fatigue syndrome ME. It was uh, depression, anxiety, uh, weight problems, you know, diabetes a whole variety of conditions that seem like they're unrelated, but actually boil down to how we get energy in our bodies. So six months later, when he changed after he changed his diet, he was running 10Ks again, yeah. having been told he would never work again. And what he did was he went low carb. So that's how he understood it at the time. Cut out the carbs. So cut out rice, pasta, bread, sugar and then up the amount of uh, beef, lamb, chicken, pork mm-hmm. and vegetables and fat from animals basically yep. that you're yep. eating. Mm-hmm. So whole foods that you might find in the in the in those two aisles of the supermarket basically. Yep. Yep. And six months later running 10Ks again, he's not looked back since what he's done is developed this really in-depth knowledge of nutrition and refined the knowledge. And I, I came in, you know, in 2014, 
with all my problems. He saw that I was struggling. You know, I'd got a decent degree, but I was clearly not firing on all cylinders mm -hmm. at that point. Yep. And he said, listen, I don't overstep the mark, but this might be able to help. So he pointed me in the right direction. The other thing was there was interest, that, there was mutual interest because he would say weird things like, I only eat one meal a day or margarine isn't food mm -hmm. or um, wheat isn't really food, depending on how you define it. So I was like, wait a minute, what is he talking about? So I yeah. really wanted to understand how this incredibly intelligent man was saying these things that just sounded almost like gibberish. Yeah. So he's very good for pointing in, the, in a direction and not telling you what to think. So he just said, here's some places you can look and here's some things you can search for on PubMed, which if you don't know is like the kind of Google for um, research articles mm -hmm. on medicine and nutrition and that kind of thing. Anyone can get on it. It's great. If you're interested, you just go to PubMed and type in anything you like, like, um, uh, you know, uh, beef and gut health, something like that. And then it's up to you to decide whether the, the study is any good or not, mm -hmm. which is a bit more in depth. And sometimes people don't want to do that. It's one of the reasons I do health coaching is I can translate that for people. Yeah. But I did what he'd done, which was dive into that research. And <laughs> I, I more or less stopped researching physics and dedicated all my time yeah. to researching nutrition and implemented it and took the plunge in late 2015 and started doing a paleolithic ketogenic diet. So for anyone who doesn't know what that is, it means, like I said, you cut out the carbs and you keep the carbs to below 20 grams a day. And that's quite easy if you're just eating meat and veg, basically, as long as the veg is above ground, as they say so. You cut out the potatoes and the parsnips and that kind of thing. And paleolithic means that you're cutting out stuff that only appeared after the paleolithic period. So humans have been evolving for several million years. You know, at some point there was like a, it's a spectrum, isn't it? At some point mm -hmm. we were very similar to monkeys. And then, yeah. uh, and then we got gradually more similar to wherever we are today. Um, so you can cut it off a few million years ago, but um, we've been eating meat and butchering it for more than two million years, and we only started eating dairy and grains about ten or fifteen thousand years ago. So it's this tiny time that we've been eating that stuff, and sugar similarly, a few thousand years, and um, veg oils. You know, oils made from the processing of seeds. And so we're talking things yeah. like sunflower oil, canola oil, uh, soybean oil, that kind of thing. They're, they're like the last hundred years. So, you know, um, the Paleolithic part to me means being suspicious of things that have only been around for a few thousand years that our bodies didn't evolve to process. Mm -hmm. And so I started eating like that. And I have to tell you, I was scared to do it because we're given all this information about fat being bad for us. Yeah. And um, it's know, a, I guess it's bringing it into um, how does that sit in terms of the modern storytelling around food? Because there's no secret. I, you know, I did some coaching with you recently around health, which was really to help with inflammation in my skin. But when I told people what I was doing, they're like, so what the fuck are you eating then? <laughs> like, you, there must be nothing left for you to eat if you don't eat basically the shit, <laughs> you know? But people get so frightened about, wait a minute, what am I going to eat if I don't eat carbs and I don't eat, you know, processed foods? What, you, you can't you can't go without vegetable oil? What's so bad about vegetable oil? You know? Mm -hmm. Is there not the detrimental effects to just having a mostly, is it mostly a meat-based diet? Is that, am I, or am I picking this up wrong? Is it well, mostly? there's different ways of looking at it. So different people come at it from different angles. Some people thrive best on a meat-only diet. Mm. You know, there's a growing carnivore community in the world. And particularly people who've had experience with autoimmune diseases or mental health issues mm -hmm. can reverse these 
on a purely carnivore diet in a way that they don't even get with a keto diet. But if your uh, emphasis is on avoiding eating animals, then you can go low carb or keto and be vegan or vegetarian. It's harder because you need to supplement protein mm. and you need to um, you need to supplement with minerals and vitamins because that's lacking and there's a lot more vitamins and minerals in animal mm -hmm. foods. So is it a case of trial and error in terms of what works for you? Most definitely, yeah. The, the gold standard for something that was very frustrating for me when I was going back and forth to the doctor and telling them I had this problem and that problem was that, you know, they were trying to diagnose something. When they were listening to me, they were trying to diagnose something and then give me a drug for it. And I think drugs can be life-saving. You know, there's nothing, I've got nothing against uh, using effective drugs. But, um, it, 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 you know, I... I got diagnosed with ADHD actually when I was an adult and I got given Ritalin and it sort of helped for a while, but then you get, you build up tolerance and then, you know, it doesn't work. And I don't think we evolved over 3 million years to have a Ritalin deficiency. You know, that's not the root cause. It might be life-saving in the moment, but working out what the root cause is is important to me. And for different people, their root cause will be different. So, I had to I had to experiment from the point that I started doing this paleolithic ketogenic diet because I went in and out of being paleo. I would have things like double cream and cheese, which uh, is, you know, keto but not paleo. And I really enjoyed them, but they didn't make me feel good. So there was this sort of tension there. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to work it out for myself because some people seem to be doing keto with double cream cheese and that sort of thing and absolutely thriving so that works for them but not for me and um the absolute gold standard in all this is an elimination diet so there's various tests that people talk about whether it be um breath tests or getting a little clipping of your hair and doing tests or skin prick tests for allergies, et cetera, et cetera, to find out what you might be intolerant to. Mm -hmm. But eliminate an elimination diet is really the gold standard because it's an experiment on you that you can check results yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not having to rely on some lab telling you something that may or may not be true. So what I did and what, I suggest to people who are really kind of at the limit and want a solution is that they just try to cut down to the basics of what you need in your diet to thrive, which is meat, fish, eggs, and if you like it, veg. Mm -hmm. And what people find is that that gives them a baseline. So I found when I did that, that my... Uh, heartburn of 25 years went away almost overnight that my anxiety pretty much disappeared that my depression and low mood disappeared I had all this mental energy and focus and um, calm in a way that I hadn't felt this calm descended on me um, which is an effect a lot of people talk about when they, they eat a ketogenic diet the brain actually really likes ketones which are the uh, the molecules made from fat that you're fueling yourself with when you're not eating carbs. The brain loves them. And if you think about how we evolved, it makes perfect sense. If you, you know, if you, if you look at hunters in, in Africa, very often they do something called persistence daytime hunting, which is amazing to watch. There's a video that you can get on YouTube. It's, the BBC covered it. Okay. And they... One of the great things about humans is we're sort of built to run and built to sweat. So these guys, they track an animal and they know there's an animal out there. They can see from the, the footprints and the droppings, whatever. Maybe they even spy it. But they'll just run until the animal collapses from heat exhaustion and then they kill it. Mm. And... Um, they might be actually be unsuccessful on that day. So we'll have to go out and do it again the next day and the next day 
and the next day. Mm-hmm. Now, evolution would have been stupid if they'd made the hunters worse and worse at hunting over those few days. What actually happens is they get sharper and sharper. They get keener and keener. Mm-hmm. They get faster and faster. And you find that if, if you fast over the course of a few days, you feel mentally the sharpest you've felt. Obviously, there's a drop-off point. I only eat one meal a day, similar to what you're doing. And a lot of what you're talking about, I did, you know, I did the elimination diet. Yeah. I've done ketosis, I've done paleo. And I, I would be interested, do you think that your mental health issues waned because you're autoimmune and, and these physical symptoms waned? Or do you think it's a direct... Because there's the whole research between the gut biome yeah. and inflammation and these, these things. But I would like to sort of caveat things where like people are dealing with like complex trauma and this is where this gets badly wrong. People are like, just go to the gym and just do this and, and fix your diet. People have got mental health issues because of trauma. You know, fixing your diet is going to do nothing for your traumatic experiences. You need to seek help from a professional. But personally, as I've reintroduced carbohydrates and, you know, these things that are seen as sort of like bad foods, you know, I've not had a cold or a flu in like five years. And I think that the key for me was fasting. And, I, and I've done that through elimination, reintroduction, and going, oh, well, these bad things that I had, like uh, psoriasis and um, fatigue, like severe fatigue, they've all went. But I've reintroduced these foods back into my life. But I do restrict in the way of fasting. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of goes back to really agreeing with what you're saying, that it's it's a very specific individual. Yeah, for sure. Loads know. of interesting points there. Like um, starting with the last one about how you know, you reintroduced carbs and quote unquote, a bad food. I would say that, um, that carbs are, aren't inherently bad at all. Like one of my heroes is a guy called Weston Price, who like, if you Google Weston Price, there's a website called the Weston A. Price Foundation, which has some pretty crap views on stuff, to be honest. So I wouldn't take that um, as what I'm saying. But the guy himself was amazing. He's a dentist who was wealthy and decided to travel the world and look at uh, traditional communities. And by that, I mean communities that weren't tapped in to the modern food system. So they weren't eating grains, veg oils, and sugar yet. And he did that at a time when it was probably about the last chance he had to see such a wide range of people. So he went all over the world. He was in Scotland, actually. He met the people from St Kilda who were eating you know, mutton and seabird eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, he met people like the uh, the Maasai tribesmen in Kenya who eat um, cow's blood and dairy and occasionally kill a cow. Uh, he met Inuit who were eating blubber and um, were most definitely ketogenic. But he met so many other people in the tropics, for example, who were eating fresh fruit off the trees all day long. He met people who were eating tubers all the time, you know, potatoes basically. And um, various diets where the common factor was they were getting nourishing animal foods and they were, um, they were fueling themselves uh, without any of, of, sh- of the sugar, flour and veg oil that we have now. So I'm, I'm not speaking out against carbs per se. I would say that if people are already in a bit of a, a mess, then it can be extremely helpful to restrict them. Maybe forever, maybe just for a period. And it's great that you've been able to reintroduce the, these types of things. I completely take your point as well that when you do an experiment like um, an elimination diet, a strict elimination diet, you don't know what the exact causes you only, you can only measure the effect the overall effect mm-hmm. you can't even measure the individual effects and you probably can't even go to a lab to find out what the individual effects are so for example you mentioned the gut microbiome that is such a, a new science and it's very interesting but there's all these types of tests you can take that that can supposedly tell you what types of foods you should eat and so on and so forth and i don't buy most of it it's just too early to tell and it's too complicated mm-hmm. a system. So if you'd cut something out and feel better, that's good enough for me. 
Yeah. And if you can introduce reintroduce it because you want to eat it and enjoy your life in that particular way and you still feel fine, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be my that would be my take on it. And in terms of explaining the difference in me, I think it was um, threefold. So first, there was a, a definite psychological boost in feeling like I was in control again. It's it's a real effect, but it's not the it's a psychological thing rather than a physical thing, if you like. So it's feeling positive about yourself mm-hmm. because you've got a certain element of control. In terms of what actually caused, what physically caused the change, I think it's probably a mixture. So for me, my my brain's metabolism, the way it gets energy, it seems to be better on ketones. And as I say, there's evolutionary reasons that back that up. If you're not going to eat every day, then you're likely to evolve so that the longer you go, the better the hunter you'll be. Yeah. And that implies ketones. So I think that's probably played a big part. And secondly, you picked up on the autoimmune thing, which I think is bang on. Because the way the microbiome interacts with the body is super important. It all starts in the gut. I want to sort of pick up on what I was speaking to you about, Gary, when we were talk- when we were you know working together, and what I call the big four. First, I would say alcohol is a huge deal. Alcohol decimates your gut microbiome and really can interfere with your mental health. So I don't include that in the big four because it's not a food really. But alcohol is not a health food. And it might help some people socialize, but I would recommend to anyone to try cutting it out for yeah, a time yeah. just to see what it's like. That That's a clear message. You know, anybody who wants to improve their mental health in some way, if one of your non-negotiables is alcohol, then you're always going to be fighting against other smaller things that will not be clear because your head's not quite clear. Because you, Absolutely. You know, and this uh, is why I recommend an elimination diet because... Otherwise, it's a like hard you thing, say, you can get to face up to. Like it's a fucking hard thing because we, you know, when Paul and I have had conversations about that, and Kieran and I have had conversations, it's it's a hard thing in Scotland in Glasgow. I'll just say that the four of us have had fairly similar backgrounds and upbringings, and we've experienced Glasgow in fairly similar ways. Like you, you can be ostracized for not drinking alcohol yeah. in Glasgow. You know, take a and drink. People can really take offense to it Mm -hmm. so we're not trying to downplay how hard that can be but if you're really serious you know i'm back in personal trainer mode here but if you're really serious about getting some real results then absolutely alcohol should be the top of the tree to say okay and do it as a 30 day challenge to yourself do it as a 60 day challenge to yourself do it as a 90 you know set it as a challenge and we're all quite conditioned to doing challenges now. When I did a 90 day no booze challenge, quite a few people got behind me in doing that. Now that I've started to tell people that I don't drink anymore, they're a bit like, well, I will see, you'll be back on it in a few months, go day, you know, this, that, the other. So absolutely, you know, alcohol, um, it can't be a non-negotiable if you're really serious about improving your mental health. Yeah, and, and everybody's sitting here nodding their head and smiling. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, so like, like we talked about with food, um, even if even if you want to go back to and not like you, Paul, where you went back to foods that you thought might have been unhealthy, but actually they don't interfere with your health at all now. Mm. But if if you if you identify one of the big four, which are dairy, sugar, veg oil and flour and you and you eliminate all of these and then you decide you're going to eat you know a couple of donuts and you feel absolutely terrible that's amazing information similarly with alcohol like i still drink sometimes but it's quite rare and i i feel awful afterwards but i I just have to weigh it up you know is it worth it and it's then i've got it in my toolbox yeah i i can abstain and know how much of a great difference it makes to me so the big four as i say sugar flour, veg oil, and um, dairy. And and I suppose the two surprises in there might be veg oil and dairy. Yeah, and and again, this is just so that people are following along with what we're talking about right now. This is, these are the big four where people go, well, what the fuck do you eat then? Like, there's nothing left. There's nothing else left to eat. 
Well, actually, when you have a coach like you, you realize, well, wait a minute, there's a million things and there's loads and it's actually quite easy to cut these things out. So, you know, um, that's again, just that scary, that scare factor for people. It's because it's, and Paul and I have talked about how emotional, I'm a very emotional eater. We're all emotional eaters, whether we identify it or not. But if you're saying to, you know, like if you say to me, Gary, you have to cut out sugar completely. What that says to me at a very, very, very deep level is, you're not going to get any love, Gary, because, you know, when I eat that chocolate bar, that's me getting a wee hug and I'm not going to get it. You know, yeah. and that's fucking scary. That's really, that can be really scary. But to get to that level of understanding what food means for you um, takes a lot of work. For sure. And can feel very scary when someone tells you, you need to cut this out. Absolutely. And, you know, my doctors never told me that. I had to find it myself. And then when I did it, I found it made a huge difference. Now, just pausing for a second and talking about the the sort of last reason I think my mental health improved so much was the autoimmunity thing. Now, I think sugar might be the gateway drug for most people in society. I've heard people call it um, the alcohol of children. And, uh, you know, that's something that everyone understands and everyone knows probably isn't the best. Same with flour, refined flour, you know, things like cakes and donuts and that sort of thing, biscuits. Um, dairy, we can talk about. But for me, one of the major problems is gluten. And the reason I associate that with the improvement in my mental health is that it is so bad for your gut. Mm -hmm. um, it's the landmark paper on this is by a guy called Fasano, an Italian researcher. And he basically found, like, it's weird, some researchers talk about your gut as being still outside your body. And it's not inside your body until it passes from your gut into your bloodstream. So that's what happens. You eat food, goes into your stomach, gets broken down somewhat, goes into your uh, small intestine, and then it passes into your bloodstream. So it's quite an interesting process. And the, so if you think about your, your gut wall, it has to open and close to let the nutrients into your blood um, and the the weird thing about gluten is that it has almost like a, a a skeleton key to open the junctions in your in your gut and let food in that shouldn't be going in and let particles in that shouldn't be going in and let bacteria in and other stuff and when that gets into your bloodstream your your body recognizes that as an invader and attacks it. That's what autoimmunity is. It's your immune system acting on its on its, its own system. So you might get autoimmune arthritis if these particles are in your in your joints. You might get autoimmune mental uh, ailments if it passes across the blood brain barrier into your brain. And that is, I think, the main reason that what when I changed what I eat, um, my mental health improved, is because my gut health improved. Mm -hmm. And you've got some amazing papers on um, on gluten and mental health. Yeah, and funnily enough, I'm gluten-free. So I've done that through feeling. And when I tried to eat gluten, reintroduce it, it was like, you know, not like a graphic, but the toilet took an absolute pound. That, you know, <laughs> my stomach was so sore. But as I've reintroduced dairy and I've reintroduced vegetable oils, and the one that I was like, no, I can clearly see this impact in me is gluten mm -hmm. so it's funny that you say that because i don't know anything about these papers it's just been done on my own yeah self-experiment and, yeah. and gluten is the one that i've kept out my diet completely well i mean all these n equals one experiments are brilliant and it's the only true way of finding out if it's going to work for you and like the rate of schizophrenia in uh the south sea island kind of colonies or nations was like one in 30,000 people. So basically nobody had it until modern foods arrived. And now it's like one in 500, which is like the same sort of rate that we get in the West. Now, they've done experiments where they've removed gluten from schizophrenic patients' diets and they get better. There's a clear connection between gluten and um, autoimmune mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. And I felt so much better not having it and when i've had gluten since not only have i experienced the 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 disappointing toilet time like you were talking about 
but also um, <laughs> really nice to <laughs> better than my appetite <laughs> <laughs> but also mental direct mental effects like I felt spaced out trippy paranoid it's really uh, intense and so that's a huge win that people can can get is is cutting out gluten um, although again <clears throat> tough because it's, it's in our culture that's it absolutely I think it just and this is where this is where people like yourself, you know, and specifically what you do is that, you know, Paul's been fortunate enough to be able to work it out for himself, but that's probably taken him a number of years. So I obviously came to you when I was having really horrendous skin inflammation, bad eczema, covering a lot of my body. And had I sat and tried to, like, I, I as a personal trainer with some understanding of nutrition, uh, knew that really I could probably significantly improve my eczema symptoms via nutrition, but I didn't really know specifically how to do that. Now, within I, I felt at times when it, within our coaching that I was disappointing you because I didn't have a lot to tell you, but because I basically did exactly as you told me, I got some really fast results and I didn't then therefore have a lot to tell you. Um, and I could have, I could have probably worked it out for myself over a period of three months, six months, nine months, however long, or I could have invested all the time to go and do, you know, my own research. But to be able to come and have someone who's been there, seen it, done it, worked with folk, you're just expressing yourself towards those results to getting yourself yeah. out of the shit. Like I would, I would not have, I, I, I you know, I was, my body was covered. I all the time I left the house. At one point, I was even wearing a bandana because my forehead was like fucking eczema. Mm -hmm. And um, very quickly, we got out of that because you supported me through cutting out the big four, informing me on what I could eat, should eat, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say here is don't waste the time working out for yourself. Seek out, you know, someone like yourself and for anybody who's been depressed because of inflammation, however that looks, whether it's skin inflammation, gut inflammation, um, mental inflammation, which, you know, it's not, obviously not a thing, but having mental health issues that may be linked to food, then don't hang about waiting to work out for yourself. Don't wait for your doctor necessarily to tell you what to do. Um, although, you know, so you should always... GPs probably have absolutely no clue that this even exists. You know, the reason I found it was through podcasts and yeah. listening to somebody called Rhonda Patrick. Oh, yeah, I like who, that. Yeah, and her yeah. research and, and her work. I mean, she's like the last line of defence for people that are about to get sectioned in New York. And I heard her speak about it and she's like, I fixed their diet and 75% of them don't get sectioned. Yeah, and when yeah. things are that high, such high results, it's like there's something there. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just going to try this and see what happens, you know. It's it? just a, a, an experiment. But the, other th the other thing you mentioned, Paul, actually, which I wanted to pick up on, um, and it was, it was uh, similar to what we were talking about before we started, was about trauma. And um, I had a couple of psychiatrists, consultant psychiatrists in the NHS on my podcast, um, Agnes Aiton and Ali Ibrahim, and they specialize in eating disorder uh, research and treating patients. And, you know, their, their recent paper was about the Western diet as a blind spot in mental health treatment and uh, eating disorder research. And they found that really pretty much 100% of binge eating disorders is on processed food, which can roughly be described as a combination of sugar, flour, and veg oils. Mm -hmm. And think Krispy Kreme or, you know, other of types of these awful foods are available. And nobody's binging on lamb chops, you know. Um, and I asked them, you know, the, the, did, did, did anorexia and bulimia exist? couple hundred years ago and they say there's not really any record of it so something changed you know it, it's hard to think that and this th this doesn't necessarily extrapolate to every mental health condition but you talking about Rhonda Patrick's results is really really interesting and trauma if anything has likely gone down as our lives have materially improved over the years so why has mental health 
why have mental health problems skyrocketed? I don't think traumas went down, mate. <laughs> you know, I, I think with, trauma I is hugely still yeah, there. I deal with, I de you know, I'm a, a cognitive behavioural therapist and I deal with people on a daily basis and, and people's traumas are on different scales, but nearly every, you know, nearly every person I meet has some form of traumatic thing that happens in sure. working class, you know, especially in this city that we sit in. I think it would be easy to think that traumas go down as your life's become more comfortable. I think they just evolve. And I, it's I've got how, no doubt you know, that there's that there's a lot in that. Um, I don't mean that it's gone away. I just mean that if there was a, um, if there was a, if there's a, if there's a, you've, you definitely see this massive increase in mental health problems, but you don't see an accompanying massive increase in, um, at least admission of trauma. So you've got like maybe maybe traumas hovering around the same level for the last 50 years shall we mm -hmm. say and um, but mental health problems have skyrocketed so i think there's you know there's going to be people who are n not feeling good mentally simply because of trauma like you can dial in your diet but if something absolutely terrible has happened to you then how can how can you suggest that diet will fix it yeah. of course it won't um but like you're saying, if, if your if your brain works better, then why would you not fix the diet? Yeah, you know because trauma is about relation, and you know like I could have had something happen to me, and you could have had the exact same thing, and I go into a sort of post traumatic state, and you don't simply because your mind processes that experience better than what mine does. So I think that it's. There's a connection there, and and if you get somebody that's suffering, why would you not? If there's an advantage to them restricting their diet so that they can at least get this sort of platform to go, well, let's see if it helps. Why would you not recommend it? And if and if you are suffering from mental health issues, why would you not do it? You know, like surely Absolutely. everybody just wants to do. They will do anything to get uh, rid of these these problems. I think so. this brings me back to what like this is this is bringing me back to what we discussed in actually episode one, where I talked about having the conversation with this girl who said, oh, I had this amazing PT and he just sorted my whole life out and it was just blah, blah. And I was like, all right, so it was just that one thing that you did. I was like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like, so there was nothing else in it. And after like a couple of minutes conversation with her, it was like, oh, well, actually I had this amazing counsellor too. And I actually did this nutrition course. And it's like, well, don't, don't commit your results to just being one thing, mm -hmm. you know? Understand that what we are, if, if, if a listener takes the tools that they've heard over the last few episodes, they've now got two or three or four different things that they can do to potentially make significant improvements in their mental health. And that's what it's about. It's about realizing you can just rep it out in the gym and your mind's fine. You can sure. just change your diet and it's fine. Mm -hmm. You don't just deal with some of the traumas you've had and then everything's there's you need to use all the tools yeah. you need to engage with and I, I think that i think that strikes on um like the heart of what i try to do as a health coach and what i think brothers in arms is about and what you were talking about paul about trauma is that you can give people all this information about what might work on one level they might even want it to work but some people don't feel like they deserve to be better and that is really hard to overcome. Yeah. Like you were just saying how, Kieran, how before um, you've got 3,000 spaces for counseling, mm -hmm. free yep. counseling, high quality counseling. And currently you're sitting at 2,000 users yep. for your app. Why aren't people jumping on that? You know, a good counselor is probably 50 quid an hour plus. Oh, yeah. So, um, there's a gap between people with mental health issues who have the knowledge taking that extra step. Mm. You know, we can talk to a blue in the face about what works for us or what um, might have caused them to feel like that. But how do you actually get them to do something? This is uh, coming back to the, the hard question, man. The really, really tough nut to crack. And I was talking to somebody who will be coming on the podcast in a few weeks. Paul and I uh, touched on this. It's um, this idea that 
us guys here, right, we're all engaged in talking about our mental health and we can put, put our arms wide and pull in a load of guys who are all willing to talk about their mental health. But we, whilst when we go to the sharp end of the, you know, the stick, we want to prevent male suicide and those in positions of who are qualified, who have experience in this area, it's not about the guys who are talking about it. It's about the guys who have never talked about mm -hmm. it, yep. who are most at risk. And this is the tough nut we're trying to crack. It's what what's the magic key to unlock that person who hasn't at any point opened up and gone, a bit fucked or I'm a bit upset or I'm a bit angry or whatever. It's just like, come on, like... And this is what we're doing. We're trying to set examples of loads of different people who are willing to stand up and talk about what's difficult for them. And so, you know, something you you were talking about, Paul, was very dear to my heart because I'm from Glasgow, and like, you know, the the kind of the way that working class communities have been treated over the years is appalling, and you have like a an incredible, an awful disconnect in. A lack of a sense of community and a sense of meaning. I think those two things are often what make people, particularly men, feel suicidal and stop them from asking for help. They don't feel like they're part of a community and they don't feel like they have any meaning in their life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you've had your dad or your granddad or full year going, you know, I went to the factory and I went to the, the thing. These things don't exist anymore for men. And still society just tells people it's about work 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 that's where you'll get your value that's where you'll get your money that's where you'll get your life just go to work and it's like there is no meaningful work left for people like we've got vast amounts of people that would have naturally just went to the shipyards would have went to the factory and that was sort of yeah. set up and like that something but we've not changed yeah. the educational system mm -hmm. to really fit into this new world we should be teaching kids about nutrition how to breathe properly like all of these things that are going to set them well money to, management yeah like how to manage money how to buy but no we're still creating workers that are unskilled don't have a clue you know home economics like what? I, think, I think this is a really really interesting point because there's because of social media again and we're we're, we're always every episode we're going to get onto the subject of social media because it's such a huge part of life now but on social media you know there's an there's an amazing guy called Gary Vaynerchuk who um, started Wine Library for his dad's business, took it, turned it into a multi-million pound business, then started market, blah, blah, blah. And he's always talking about like fucking side hustle and you've got to get back from work and you've got to get your side hustle going. You've got to do it, blah, 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 blah. And whilst that's fine for Ali, who's got an entrepreneurial mind, you know, people that have decided I want to be self-employed, so I'm willing to put in more hours than whatever the next person. But whatever happened to there being meaningful jobs that you go to for eight hours a day and come home and be able to live a life yeah can afford to buy a house can afford to keep be able to just live life without feeling like a piece for of sure, shit for sure, you know man. and can have workmates you know people guys are just sitting at home alone a lot of the time uh -huh. yeah it's desperate it's pretty much around well one of the main reasons we started with the peer support group was because of well um a lot of the messages come through and a lot of people that were confined to home during lockdown to work and although the idea of working from home sounds great the number of people who's actually had their social outlets cut off and didn't realize those small interactions at work that 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 little time in the lunch break whether mixing with their work colleagues or even just chatting over the water cooler or whatever how much that actually meant to them mm -hmm. to then being yeah. confined at home 24 7 with the family and they're going out their minds they're working in the same place that they're living in and it's just not it wasn't working for them mentally so that's why we started that to give people an outlet, yeah. I think that's exactly what rings true for me is that before any of this lockdown happened, I didn't realise just how important walking by a person that you know in the street and going, Hey you doing? You yeah. alright? Several people a day, you know, we were sitting outside, just happened to bump into a guy that we know, two minutes conversation, like those tiny interactions that mean so much to your feeling of your place in the world, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it. Yeah, I think I, I just wanted to you know 
really hit that point home because that was what was so true for me. And that's why I wanted us to start a peer-to-peer support group. That's why I felt I needed a peer-to-peer support group because those little interactions were just taken away, mm. you know? And if you don't really like people, then maybe you do want to stay at home. But you have to understand you're still a human animal and you still need to interact with people sometimes, yeah, you know? Sure. And I guess, like, it doesn't matter what your traumatic background is or your family background or your work background. You know, there's all sorts of things that you might want to talk to a counsellor about, even if you feel okay at the time. And I think that's I think that's a very special type of meaning and connection is, I mean, I've, I've got some friends that, to be honest, are not high quality in terms of their emotional landscape, shall we say. They are people that I like watching the football with or something. I can't talk to them about that sort of stuff. And I accept that they're, they're still my friends, so I still see them. But and I, very few people have friends that are interested in giving you an hour where it's just about you. And I don't think until people have that type of therapeutic conversation, they understand how amazing it can be. You know, I went to a counsellor who was very helpful when I was having mental health crises. And the reason I don't mention him as much in um, in terms of how I got better is that he definitely made a huge difference. But then I would have to go back to him. Whereas when I changed how I ate, I'd still see him sometimes for a tune-up. But it's like, you know, once a year or something instead of like, I need to see you every month or else I'll, you know, I'll feel suicidal. So like w- your service of of of, um, of providing counselling is so amazing because it's the start for so many people to actually just take stock of what means something to them in their lives, mm-hmm. which you don't, which, which a lot of people go their whole lives without getting. Yeah. Yeah. And so accessible as well um, to be able to do it from your phone and take counselling from essentially anywhere, anywhere you can use your phone. It's, um, just like you said, it's about getting that, getting people to engage and getting people to use it. And how, how do you do that? Yeah. It's just, we just keep battering this message where it's like, understand it's fine to shout about Brothers in Arms and Brothers in Arms being a men's mental health charity, but get to the point of understanding how people get help from Brothers in Arms and that help from Brothers in Arms comes for free Mm -hmm. and it's therapy, high quality therapy that you would otherwise have to pay for. You there's know, a stigma around it still, isn't there? Massively, that, that was... There's, there's, you know, there's even like a stigma around us talking like we are just now, as guys <clears throat> talking about mental health. Totally, and it's, it was all... That, that was what, what, we, what started this whole podcast, was we, Brothers in Arms, Dan, who founded Brothers in Arms, got to a point where he felt that we had to be really open and honest about who Brothers in Arms are, and what they do. And now look at our social media pages in a, a few weeks, all of a sudden it's like, we are brothers in arms, we do therapy, you know? And before like- look, We were kind of beating about the bush a little bit with it, calling, to, it yeah. calling it live coaching because we thought people will interact more if you don't use the word therapy because people are, uh, uh, oh, you hear the word therapy and they kind of cur- curl up a little bit like, oh, yeah. So we went for live coaching, but then, Ultimately, people would ask, what is it you guys do? And you explain, oh, well, we've got this app where we've got live mental fitness coaches on it. And they go, oh, what's a mental fitness coach? And you end up just getting to the point of explaining it's therapy, like they're, they're counsellors, they're therapists, so why not just call it what it is, cut out all the bullshit and just, it is what it is. And it's, it's part of Brothers in Arms growth, but it also is inherently part of the male journey in mental health and in therapy, you know, because you might just, you know, I've, I, so, you know, I've been doing some therapy the last n- number of weeks and I started introducing that into conversation as, well, I was talking to somebody about this and I would then describe the thing. So I didn't want to say therapy, and but over like two or three weeks, I've just started going, oh yeah, I had a therapy session and actually I was talking about this. I had a therapy session, I was talking about that. Um, but but still, you know, still like I've been talking to some of my personal training clients about this, and they're like, "Wait a minute, you're sorted, Gary. How come you don't hear?" Well, actually, and again, it comes back to the whole best version of yourself. Best version of yourself, I don't necessarily agree with. What I want to do and what I'm working on is being the more complete version of myself, where I can say the things that I don't love about myself to other people without having to just hide them. You know. 
So it's, it's part of that journey, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's also things that, that I've told to my counsellor that I wouldn't actually tell to my friends, either because they're too close or because, you know, I feel ashamed about it or because it's weird or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. those types of those types of conversations are important to have. Totally. Kieran put it really well, you know, a few weeks ago when he said, like, it's, you know, you, you go to the pub to watch football, to, you know, chat to your blah, 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 and you use your friends for that and... When we look at the rhetoric online from many, I'll stick to my area, fitness coaches, ninja coaches, whatever it is, they'll go, cut out the toxic people in your life. If these people aren't building you up, then cut them out, blah, blah, blah. Rubbish. Like, it's fine to have pals that you've been pals with for a long time who don't nourish your mental health every day and don't want to hear about all your difficult things. Your pals sometimes just want to go, do you know what? Oh, man. Did you see that in the news? Did you see that mad bird that knocked in the the the, uh, the Tour de France cyclist man? What a fucking idiot! She what? That's fine to have that conversation. You don't need to, you know. It's not all about being in this Zen state, I guess. To come back round full circle, Ali, um, can we get your like top few tips for people? who think, okay, I want to improve my mental health and I really want to use my nutrition to do that. What are the simple steps that they can follow or indeed share with us, you know, your sources, i.e. your, you know, Instagrams, blah, blah, where people can come and connect with you and improve their mental health via nutrition. Sure. So I would say the big four are the places to start. Um, Actually, weirdly, I would put veg oils at the top. I think that's a long-term thing. I think they're, the, the evidence is pretty clear that they're strongly implicated in being overweight, being obese, mental health problems, gut problems. Um, and what by that, I mean things like sunflower oil. Um, you know, olive oil is pretty good. Coconut oil is pretty good um, if you're talking about oils from vegetables, um, although olives are fruit. Um, but... I think basically don't fear animal fats. Don't fear eating beef and lamb. There's a lot of misinformation about that. Uh, flour, sugar are a kind of unholy duo that are everywhere. And Would you say that sugar from fruit is good? I wouldn't call it good or bad. I would say that in establishing a baseline it can be useful for people to cut out uh, carbs in general and then see how they feel after. And certainly, I can't speak out against fruit. Like Weston A. Price saw people who are in the absolute peak of physical health picking tropical fruit off trees. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's inherently unhealthy by any means. Um, it's just to be weighed up in the in the balance with other things. Yeah. Um, and... It's, it depends on what your health goals are. Um, I feel like if I if I eat a lot of fruit, I find it hard to stop. I can eat I can eat quite a lot of it, and then I feel fuzzy headed, and I get th- th- those types of of feelings. So I personally don't like eating it, um, but some people thrive with it. Um, we talked that, about snacking more on berries, really, didn't we? Like darker berries. If, if that's something you want to do, yeah, biltong's great. That's something I eat a lot of. I actually, make it myself. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, but you know, if, if that's if that's what you're into, berries are good. I mean, I've got a, a cookbook called Low Carb on a Budget, which yep. is um you know, it's got eighty-five plus recipes for making this sort of thing practical. But see, to be honest, you can go to multiple websites and get recipes for low carb or paleo. Whole thirty is another way of eating which is similar to paleo and encompasses some of these um ways of thinking about cutting out the big four. Try any of these, see what works and be quite rigorous with it for a month. You know, yeah. it's a month of your life. It's not a long time to try it and see if it helps yeah. you as an individual. I'll say certainly from a personal point of view, I did it really strictly for a short period and I found very fast results. Like don't do it half arsed because you'll only get half arsed results. You know, it's the same as I say to my PT clients. If you do everything I say, you get really fast results. If you do what I say when you're just with me, you'll get slow results, you know? Yeah, 100%. 
So I'm the kind of person who geeks out about these sorts of things and uh, goes in, you know, you know, uh, the whole way. So um, I I understand that not everyone wants to do that. That being said, I would say you know, cutting out the big four and seeing if you if you if you hit this baseline of feeling better, then that's what I would recommend. My uh, Instagram is at Paleo Canteen, which is P-A-L-E-O-C-A-N-T-E-N. And I'm also on Twitter and Facebook at that. And I sell uh, low sugar and sugar-free um, Yep, foods. which I can fully endorse because I've had it and it's... I've it's, actually brought some chocolate for you. It's very good. It's, it's really good. Yep. Some sugar-free chocolate. So Great. that's the kind of thing that people can... You know, when I, when I first started, I, I needed that kind of thing to bridge away from these uh, worst foods. And sometimes, you know, I, I sell uh, uh, keto ice cream made with double cream. Sometimes people do fine with, with double cream. I don't eat my own ice cream because I'm not the best with dairy, but um, that's out there too. Yeah. So that's all That's all called Scoundrel. That's the name of the yeah, brand. Yeah, Scoundrel ice cream, Scoundrel chocolate. Uh, it's in some pretty uh, good uh, shops as well, isn't it? Yeah, we're in Roots and Fruits in Glasgow, yep. in the West End, um, the one on Great Western Road, um, Greenhall Farm Shop in Blantyre, uh, we're in Margiotta in Edinburgh, and Loch Leven's Larder, and people can order it online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but as I say, that's, that's, I'm not necessarily saying you have to eat these, uh, you know, sweetened sugar-free treats. Uh-huh in order to do well, it's just something that some people want to use. Absolutely, because we all are incentivized by having a little treat, you know? We're all like heading towards that little finish line where it's like, oh, well, I can have this. You don't need to necessarily break the, the, the parameters you've set for yourself around diet, and you can have something that feels a little bit naughty, a little bit indulgent, you know? If, if it works for you, because, you know, similarly to what we're talking about alcohol, some people can have a drink every few months and be okay. Some people can't. Similarly with sugar, I think it's important to get out into the open that sugar is a very addictive thing and that it could be at the root for a lot of people's problems. And it's actually very hard to get away from it. It's in our culture. There's a cake culture. You know, you're expected to, you know, why aren't you having any? Don't you Don't you think um, my daughter's birthday is important? Or whatever it is. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but these are the conversations in people's heads, you yeah. know. And so it's okay to be abstinent completely from sugar if that's what works for you. Yeah, you know. And it is, and I, and I mean that I, I, that feels important to say. From my point of view, it's okay to go without them because the the you know the the the, the loud message around alcohol, around sugar, around these things is. It's not okay to go without them. If they're, if you're not having them, there must be something wrong or you're doing something really extreme. You know, um, when we look at doing intermittent fasting, the girls that I go to a coffee, that I go and have a coffee with uh, in the mornings just now, uh, are like that to me. Are you still doing that mental diet because I order a black coffee? <laughs> and I'm like, what, eating one meal a day and having a snack? Yeah, and I'm doing fine on it. I'm not dead. Because we've been so conditioned in the world to think that we need calories every two hours or every hour or, you know, just continuously. And it's just shit. You know, the most extreme calorie restriction I've heard of recently, um, which was really interesting, is a, a an initiative called Zero Five Hundred, which I just want to mention quickly, which was um, zero calories, uh, five days, 100 miles. So they ran 100 miles in Aye, five days. Yeah. Was Ben Fogel part of that? Um, it was Fuck James Cracknell. James Cracknell, the yeah, Olympic yeah. rower. And there was, it was a doctor who's type 1 diabetic and a nurse who's a diabetes practice nurse. And they were basically saying, listen, you don't need to feed yourself uh, um, carbs every two hours. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that. Really important. I think we might do a few shout-outs if we got... Um, Here's Coach Cal. He completed 30,000 reps and 150K uh, running, I'm sure, along with some others as well. We've got Craig and Chris who continue their uh, training and preparation for the West Island Way. I was chatting to them about uh, the midges and how mental they are going to be. They've got some cool headdresses uh, for doing the West Island Way, and I think we will be joining them. 
please don't be offended if we've missed you in any way. We appreciate every single penny that's donated to Brothers in Arms. One um, group I did want to thank was Sean Adams and his three friends who are Graham Bruce, Chris Nicol and Craig Ballantyne who completed 72 whole and four courses challenge on Friday and raised a massive total of £1,130 altogether. Dynamite, guys. Awesome, man. It's a hard day on the golf course. Oh, it is, uh, Jeez. It certainly is. Wow. Some boys. Great stuff. Uh, yeah. Oh, good. Well, I think we uh, wrap up there and um, we'll see you next week for episode four, folks. Please share the podcast. Uh, follow us, Brothers in Arms pages. And uh, yeah, if you if, if anything's affected you or uh, caused any thoughts, please drop us a message, interact with us. This is what the podcast is supposed to be about, is, is increasing interaction with uh, those who are involved with or are accessing the app, Brothers in Arms, or coming to the peer-to-peer support groups. So come on, come and chat to us, guys. Cheers.